0: doctors bamboozled by jargon, blinded by science, and turning to Google in the hope it'll become your new best friend. Well, this is the concept behind Naked Health. It's to strip medicine right back down to its basics, to cut out the jargon, tell it as it is, and really make it accessible to everybody. My name is Penny Ward, and I currently work as a GP. I feel that in my role, I'm touched by so many lives, so many stories and experiences. I want to take you on these journeys with me, seen through my eyes as a doctor, but told using the voices of everyday people. The year is 1851, 169 years ago, a time when Lord Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace, was being treated with brandy, opiates, cannabis, mesmerism and chloroform for what we now believe to have been cervical cancer. Thanks to the father of cytology, Dr George Niccolo, the pap smear or smear test was introduced back in 1928 and very quickly after that became the gold standard of cervical screening. It wasn't until 1988 that here in the NHS we had a cervical screening programme of our own, but quickly and within a few years there was a 57% reduction in cases of cervical cancer. Now with the screening programme becoming increasingly sophisticated and the advent of the HPV vaccination, 99.8% of cervical cancer cases are preventable. Ada Lovelace never had access to these medical advances, and 169 years later we do, but for some reason we're not taking full advantage of them. Today's episode will tell you why you should. Today I'm joined by Sophie, who is actually from my neck of the woods where I originally came from in Shropshire. So hi Sophie, thank you so much for for chatting to me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: What I wanted to do was cast you all the way back to a couple of years ago, so probably about August-September time in 2017 when you got a little two or three month old in your arms who no doubt was keeping you very busy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the summer of 2017 is a bit of a blur for me because as you said I was a new first-time mom to a gorgeous daughter who was, uh, was all-consuming at the time still is. I, when I was pregnant with, with Evelyn I had my second invitation for my smear test for my second smear test.
0: Presumably you'd been having a couple of smears up, up to that point had you?
1: Yes, I'd had my first smear at 25. So at 28, I was invited for my second smear.
0: And how was the first smear? I know everybody hears all of these horror stories all over social media and different forums about the smear. Have you been worried at 25 going for it? Or was it just one of those things that you kind of thought, I'd better do it?
1: I hadn't really worried about it at all. At the time, I was at university in Liverpool. So I wasn't really even at my own GP or anything like that, but I still wasn't worried. I just knew that it was something that I had to get done. I'd not really heard any horror stories, stories about it, to be honest. So I went, the experience was absolutely fine. There was a nurse that explained what the smear test was, why she needed to do it, asked me if I had any concerns, and I didn't at that time. Yeah, and it was opened and was really quick. I don't remember anything significant from that appointment, really. And I had results back, I think, within a couple of weeks, but I can't really remember. But they were all clear.
0: So then that was it. Then for another three years. Brilliant. You're you're the perfect person to to describe that smear experience because <sighs> I think a lot of people do worry, and like you say, it's it's over in, in a heartbeat, isn't it? And actually not really on, on your radar at all. Yeah,
1: that's right, yeah.
0: And then your second smear would have come three years later, just just after your little one was born, is that right? Yes,
1: well, I think it was actually due when I was pretty much full-term pregnant. Uh, so I delayed it for about six months. I, I mean, there was no reason that I needed to delay it six months. Just um, as you said, when I was in the throes of being a first-time mom, it, it it just was not on my radar at all. But it was my mom said, "Sophie, you know you needed your smear back in the summer. so by By the the following January, so uh, December maybe December two thousand seventeen, I think is when I went for my second smear. So I was a little bit late. I think in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't massively late taking it.
0: Not at all. And I think a lot of us for life reasons pregnancies all sorts of things it's Mm. quite unusual for people to be be spot on Mm. and at at that point I think when you've just had a baby as well your periods are are heavier and slightly different to normal so it, it would be harder to recognize if there was any any worries am I right
1: yeah absolutely I didn't have I breastfed for five months so I didn't really have a period at all for that period of time and like you say any kind of looking back in hindsight now I I know certain things, but the time, if I had irregular bleeding or anything like that, I just put that down to postpartum issues, you know, was nothing
0: that was really concerning to me. And when you went for that second smear, was there any indication whilst the smear was being done that the the nurse who did it had seen anything that she was concerned about or anything unusual she mentioned to you?
1: Well, when I attended, again, this was back home now in Shropshire, and the, the nurse was like our family nurse, really who I'd been going to since a child, and she was lovely, put me at ease, even though I wasn't really too worried again. But she asked yeah. me, you know, any concerns, any any unusual bleeding, anything like that? And I, I said, well, I have been getting some bleeding, and sometimes I was having to wear a panty liner, because I guess it was more than just spotting. But I said, but yeah. that's probably postpartum, isn't it? And she said, well, we do need to, she said, I will make a note of that. And then I thought, oh, OK. And when she took the smear, it was fine again, quick. I wasn't really uncomfortable. And she said, oh, yeah, there's a bit of bleeding here when I'm swabbing as well. So it's, I'll just mention it. So I, wasn't, I still wasn't really worried. But that was the first time I yeah. think I thought, oh, bleeding, abnormal bleeding is maybe not something to just be that blase about as I was.
0: The results certainly here in Hampshire, the NHS screening program are the ones that post the results out usually within a, in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Is that how you got your result?
1: Well, yes and no. Really, all I got was a letter saying that the results were abnormal and that I was invited for colposcopy. So that's all I knew. That was like my first stage of thinking that something was obviously not quite right. That was within a couple of weeks I attended for my colposcopy appointment then.
0: That's quite scary having that in a letter, isn't it? When there's not an awful lot of information, just something's being picked up. We need to look at it further.
1: Yeah, it, it was a bit of a worry. But also in the same regards, I'd known other girls that had had to have colposcopy. And I didn't know any detail of it then, I think, because people don't talk about it that much. So I just knew of people... In my mind, like having some bad cells removed,
0: and talk me through colposcopy. What was what was that experience like?
1: So I attended colposcopy uh, with my partner just because he was free on that day. But I was I didn't really feel like I needed him there before I went. But I'm so glad he was there now. So yeah. I was taken into we were taken into a consultation room with a consultant, and she said, "Do you know why you're here?" And I said yes I've read up about colposcopy because they sent me a leaflet of what they were going to do and she said do you know the results of your smear test and I said in the letter it just said abnormal cells and then there and then that's when she said to me really quite quickly we highly suspect that it's cancerous and from that point then I just I can't really remember I think I almost laughed out of disbelief, not laughed, but I was like, oh, and it, that was a real, real shock to me. And I, the way that it was put to me as well, it was, I just wasn't prepared, wasn't prepared for that. She, I think she told me that because she needed me to give informed consent to essentially have the first stages of treatment, which would have been the let's procedure, so I agreed to it and at my colposcopy, I also had the lets there and then.
0: That is quite a blow to get when you, mm. like you said, you'd read the leaflet, you'd spoken to friends and there was no mm. telltale signs or suggestions to then get handed that news when you could have gone on your own to that appointment. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I was really grateful that Ed was there with me as well. But it was, for me, that was the worst day in the, the whole my cancer journey from beginning to even now because it was the day that someone told me we probably think you've you've probably definitely got cancer but we can't tell until we take some biopsies and send it off it's just this whole start of the waiting process and the guessing games then in your head
0: that's that was the worst thing always the waiting and and during that period of time what sort of thoughts were going through your head because like you say you hadn't got answers had you you were just Mm -hmm. you know living I guess inside of your head and with your your own thoughts and going down potentially taking yourself down blind alleys thinking what if
1: yeah definitely Uh, I feel in the in the whole of my experience that I've had with the different doctors and consultants and nurses and everyone everyone has been absolutely amazing but that very first lady that I saw that broke the news to me on that day I don't know whether it's because I associate her with telling me that awful news but I didn't feel communication was great and I really went away feeling like well what's the next step and if I have got cancer how long have I had it and is it treatable and why have I got it? I came away with so many questions and spent probably two weeks straight on Google which is the worst thing you can do but that's what I did to learn what is cervical cancer, what, is, what does stages yeah, mean? It, sound,
0: it sounds like you were thrown, thrown this massive curveball into your life without really knowing what the next steps were or or the answers Google's a great source in some some ways isn't it but Mm -hmm. it's sort of double-edged sword as well you can come up with forums and things that you don't necessarily want to read
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: when was it that you got your biopsy results and it was confirmed what you were dealing with
1: I think within a week, I was invited for an MRI scan. But again, no one told me why I was having an MRI scan. Noah's lack of communication a bit, I think, between the x-ray department and colposcopy. So, so x-ray called me and said, you need an MRI. And I said, well, why do I? Is it full body? Is it, are you looking for cancer in the rest of my body? And they were just they couldn't give me any information other than the fact that you're on our list and you need an MRI scan so that was horrendously worrying as well so within a week I had an MRI scan and then the week after that I was called in and I saw a completely different consultant who was had such an amazing bedside manner he came out with it really quickly uh, but in the nicest possible way to be told you've got cancer so it um it was a chap called Nick Reed and he said Sophie you've you've got cervical cancer, but we're pretty sure it's confined to the cervix and we think we can treat it with surgery alone. So in in one breath he was telling me that yes I had cancer and then in the next breath he was almost saying, but you might not even need chemotherapy and it's definitely treatable. It felt like I'd started at the worst point and then ever since then I was just getting good news, if that makes sense. I'd pictured at one point that I was going to die. Uh, so anything other than death was brilliant and then the fact that I might not even need chemo or radiotherapy I thought well that's even better and that's that's another positive and ever since then I had really positive experiences really.
0: That's incredible to hear and I think as you describe it it's all in in the delivery isn't it and making sure that if you're going to break a absolutely horrific diagnosis out of the blue at least counter it with some something whether it is we can treat this you don't need chemotherapy Mm -hmm. or we don't quite know what we're dealing with but you're going to have a scan you'll get the results back within five days and we'll Mm -hmm. take it from there some sort of idea of of what what comes next rather than leaving you in the dark
1: yeah definitely I think anyone that that I've spoken to that has had any kind of cancer mostly people I speak to you know the friends I've made are cervical cancer but it's always the waiting and when you feel that you don't know and you don't have the answers that is the most worrying time because your mind just you always I think naturally you just think the worst because you're scared to think of anything and then and and then have that blow.
0: Yeah I completely understand that and in terms of options with surgery what what options did they talk talk you through?
1: So You'd probably be better to explain this than me, but my layman's understanding was that there was two types of cervical cancer. There was the squamous cell cancer, which is what the smear test is m- mostly designed to pick up, and um, but mine was glandular, so it was adenocarcinoma, that even though they were quite sure it was confined to the cervix, apparently there's slightly higher chance of um, Metastases and skip cell lesions, just because it was glandular. So for that reason, they were still thinking that they would probably have to do a hysterectomy to reduce the risk of recurrence. Yeah. So at this point, I would we, me and my partner, we were in complete agreement. It's treatable. Nick Reed that consultant says you you need to think of the child you already have before you mourn the children that you could potentially have and that was so true I wanted to keep my fertility but also there was nothing more important than being here for my daughter so we agreed initially to go down obviously the hysterectomy route But then I was given an option to see another specialist that kind of worked at at, at my hospital trust, but also at Wolverhampton. I was given the option to see a specialist who dealt with these procedures for cervical cancer, but tried to preserve fertility. So I actually, the treatment option I actually went for was a trachelectomy as opposed to a hysterectomy. So they saved two thirds of my womb. And my ovaries to give me the chance to potentially conceive and carry another child, which again, as I said, was just another amazing option. Everything on, you know seemed to get better and better for me every time I saw someone. I oh, got my
0: tears in my eyes listening to you <laughs> saying that. That I can't imagine emotionally having I think Nick Reed obviously put it beautifully that actually your life and your future was was more important than anything at that stage yeah just just incredible
1: I know I know so fortunate so lucky I think it's it was really a way up between it was they had to be so careful like I had a second MRI scan as well also in that time frame because I wanted to be really sure that they would get clean margins from just a trachelectomy and I had to sign some paperwork to say that, you know, whilst in the operation, if they felt that they couldn't achieve uh, clear margins, that I may have to have a hysterectomy anyway. But no, they they did a trachelectomy, and that was in the April. Um, so that was quite all within two months, really, two to three months. I had my uh, operation.
0: Amazing, amazing that that was all done so so quickly. Mm, yeah. How was the recovery from from that? Because that's a pretty major procedure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was quite, it it was a major op, but they, they managed to do it keyhole. So I was told that the recovery time at the keyhole would be quicker than if it was like open surgery. So again, that was really good. Just got like a little rainbow of scar stitches over my tummy now, which I wear with complete pride. (laughs) Recovery was good for me. Generally, Cancer aside, I'm like a, I consider myself young, fit, healthy. So recovery, I think, was really quite quick physically. Anyway, it, I, I, I healed physically. I think quite well. And then the more healthier and back to normal my body became was when I think I started to suffer a lot more than with my mental health. Because in the first instance, you just got to get well, and then when you're well, that's I think when it hits you, it's like a bit of a delayed response.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose you're in survival mode, aren't you? And yeah. you're just going through the steps and doing whatever you're you're told to do and what you need yeah. to do. And then afterwards that a lot of people say that the emotional toll really, really starts to show.
1: Mm, yeah, definitely.
0: And how did you try to overcome that and, and manage? Because I think a lot of people do struggle. Are there any tips or strategies or things that, that helped you? I think, well, I think it came to a
1: head a bit when I was coming to the end of my sick leave. So I can't remember exactly how long I was signed up for, but it was a couple of months. And it was coming to the very end of that sick leave. And I knew that I was going to go back to work. I felt because I looked well, and I was back at work, you know, people were going to start treating me normal, and that I was just normal and fit and well, and I didn't feel it at all. I felt like my, my world had been turned upside down. And just because I looked well and I'd started putting makeup on again and dressing normally and everyone could see the old Sophie, but I was definitely not the old Sophie. To this day, I'm not. I think it scars you internally, really, because such so much to go through. So I had a bit of a, I had a really bad, oh, not not breakdown or anything, but one day I just really cried to Ed and he was really worried, and he called. He took it upon himself to call the guiding oncology nurses that had been assigned to me at the very beginning, and said, "I'm really worried about Sophie." And again, they were amazing, and um, they put me in place with a counsellor, with a local, with like the counselling team for the hospital. So that was like my first yeah. step forward,
0: and important as well to to talk about it. Then. And- keep it all just underneath Mm. the surface where bubble away and potentially grow.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I was saying things that I don't feel feel now, but at the time I genuinely, I think I worried Ed as well, because I just kept saying, well, this is it for me now. I know how I'm going to die because the cancer will come back at some point and I will die. And I really felt like that so much. And I, I think it really worried him that I was saying such drastic, such drastic things. But yeah, talking through it, and then I think what helped me more than ever was I'd found the charity Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust and speaking to other women that were in exactly the same situation as me or had been in the same situation as me but were years down the line, and I would cling to that, I would cling to it so much, I'd speak to someone who had been in my shoes but it was like a year on and i would think well she's doing well and you know she's not got recurrence and just such support there that's really what helped me through my dark days was joe's trust
0: definitely so important like like you say to be able to see people who have gone through it and are doing all right several stages ahead of you because it doesn't matter how much somebody in front of you who's a health professional tells you these are the statistics you're going to be okay. Mm. You need to see it. You need tangible, don't you, that you can actually see evidence that, that other people have been there and, and they are okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah.
0: As with so many people who are given a life-changing diagnosis, whether it be a condition, an illness, a disease or cancer, Sophie's become the expert. She's the expert in her particular type of cervical cancer, not just through the amount of research she's done at every stage, But due to the fact she's lived it, she's lived through her journey and she's aware of each step. And due to that, she is using quite a lot of medical terminology while speaking to me because this, I hate to coin the phrase, but this has become her new normal. So I just want to unpick some of what we spoke about a little bit just to make it more translatable to yourself or somebody you know and you're aware of the processes that happen before getting to the the diagnosis or the stage that sophie's now describing to us so if i start with colposcopy colposcopy falls under the category of a diagnostic procedure and what that means is it allows a more detailed examination of the cervix to be undertaken using a microscope it's going to be done by a gynaecologist as a day case procedure and whilst you're awake and a more magnified and detailed view of the cervix is seen allowing the gynaecologist to tell if there are any abnormal cells and if there are, samples of these cells will be taken to be looked at in further detail and that is a biopsy. Sophie mentioned that she had a LETS procedure done during her colposcopy. This stands for Large Loop Excision of the Transformation Zone. To understand that a little bit better, I just need to tell you about the cells of the cervix. The transformation zone is the area of the cervix where cells are constantly changing and their change is completely normal. The cells change from squamous cell to glandular cell and the area where these two cell types meet is called the transformation zone and this is important because over 90% of cervical cancers happen in this area. Before you get invited for colposcopy you will have had your smear taken so you will have had the recall drop through your letterbox inviting you to attend a smear at your gp surgery this is where a speculum is inserted the cervix is seen and a small brush is used to take a sample of cells from the transformation zone so as i said cells here are changing and that is completely normal but unfortunately not all the changes are the healthy expected changes that we are hoping for and that is essentially where the smear test comes in it's trying to detect early cell changes which are abnormal but have the potential to become cancerous if they're left untreated. You're typically going to receive your smear test results in the post within about two weeks and depending on your result and where you live in the UK you're going to be asked to do one of three things. One is to come back for cervical screening at your regular recall date depending on your age that is between three and five years. The second is to come back for cervical screening in one year And the third is that you might be invited to attend colposcopy for some more tests. Your smear result also tells us two different things. The first being, are there any cell changes detected? And the second, are you HPV positive or HPV negative? HPV stands for human papillomavirus. A little bit further through the podcast, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Alison Torrens, who's a gynecologist, and she's going to be speaking about the HPV virus and the vaccine in just a little bit more detail for us. So going back to Sophie, she had abnormal cells detected on her smear. She was invited for a closer, more detailed examination of her cervix at colposcopy. And during this, she had abnormal cells removed from the transformation zone using a thin wire loop and this is the Letts procedure which she had performed under a local anaesthetic. The cells which were removed were then looked at further, and the results came back showing she had cancer in the glandular cells of her cervix. She then went on to have an operation to remove the cancer and also a significant area around it, which is done to reduce the risk of it spreading any further or coming back. The procedure that she had done is called a trachelectomy, and this removed her cervix and also part of the surrounding tissues of her womb and her vagina, which has allowed her fertility to be preserved. So we're going to get back into the rest of Sophie's story. Looking back now, what do you think the symptoms were that that you did have? It's so hard after having a baby to to really know, even in that six months, what your normal periods are. But if you could tease out or unpick anything that seems like that might have been a symptom. What was it, do you think?
1: Well, I know for definite now, one thing that I really put off, uh talked myself out of, but I had postcoital bleeding a lot. And I think really yeah. looking back, I had it even before I was even pregnant with my daughter, but I just would talk it away. It didn't happen every time. So bleeding after set, it didn't happen every time. And when it did happen, I thought, oh. Mm, wonder why that is but I just didn't I just kept telling myself well it doesn't happen every time or there must be a reason for it but I know now that that is the biggest that is one of the main signs of cervical cancer abnormal bleeding bleeding between periods and bleeding after sex is not is not normal but I told myself that 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 that's my normal that's just what happens with me and I know now that that's completely not the right thing
0: to think But I think so many women don't know that they're their signs or they think oh maybe now I'm older I am bleeding when I ovulate mid-cycle or Mm -hmm. maybe after sex that that is what happens every so often I think probably those symptoms they just aren't talked about we're very very good and proper aren't we the British Mm. British public that we Mm. talk about sex bleeding after sex isn't normal because we don't we don't talk about that sort of thing
1: yeah exactly yeah So, But now, looking back, I know definitely that that was a a symptom, but I just didn't know at the time. If if I'd have known, I would have done something about it.
0: And I think there's another part of your story as well, isn't there, that you just missed out on the HPV vaccine, is that right, based on your age?
1: Yeah, yeah, that wasn't introduced, yeah, until I was, yeah, I'm just too old to have been in, in, in that category. But I think I'm a perfect example that, if the HPV vaccine did exist when I was like thirteen, fourteen, probably well, it would have definitely prevented me getting cervical cancer because HPV is like the number one cause. Really, I think it causes something like nine. I'm not. I don't know the exact uh, statistics, but ninety plus percent of cervical cancers are down to HPV. So, if I'd have been vaccinated, maybe I would have avoided getting it.
0: Yeah. It's just a date of date of birth, and mm. that must make you frustrated in some ways, thinking you were so close to being being in that age group, but just not quite yeah,
1: yeah, it does. I try to think of it the way I try to think of it is that it's amazing that my daughter will get the h p v vaccine, and that's a big weight off my mind. you know if that didn't exist, I would really worry about you know is there some kind of genetic. That was one thing we asked at the very beginning was, how do we stop my daughter going through this? You know, how do we prevent this from happening? And we were told, you know, until they know more about the human genome and cancer itself, just make sure she gets the HPV vaccine. That's her best shot. So I feel grateful of the advances in medicine, really. So grateful. But, yeah, it's just a shame it didn't happen sooner,
0: really. (laughs) But I think raising awareness now of people to to get that vaccine because there's still a group of people who are anti-vaccines be it the MMR or or the HPV and Mm. I think people hearing the different side of the fence essentially Mm. you know people born on on a certain date who had it and those those before who didn't and it can be the difference between your journey and somebody else's
1: yeah definitely
0: this is a probably probably a funny question but do you been aware or known much about Jade Goody and her story when you were going going through treatment yeah
1: well, yeah i did like at the time i followed the jade goody you know jade goody's was really high profile in the news wasn't she and since meeting other women at Joseph Cancer Trust there's a group of girls probably about 10 years older than me that call themselves the Jade Goody survivors because it was so prominent in the news at the time it prompted them to go for their smear tests and then cancers were picked up but so that was amazing Mm. that that high profile of jade but then it obviously all kind of as time goes on people forget don't they but it it did really make me think when when i spoke to to one woman and she said that because it was so much in the news was the reason she went for a smear it just made me think well people just need to start raising awareness again and be all over social media like reach anyone and everyone and if someone goes for a smear test and get even if it's just one person that you've reached out to that you know has a smear test and and you've helped prevent go through what I've had to go through I just think it's you know an achievement
0: I completely agree and I think certainly in our surgery numbers of people who are coming for their smear is at the lowest level it's been in decades really yeah just trying to get that awareness out out there and you you almost want to replay the jay goody story and people's mm-hmm. stories so they can actually see see what can happen
1: yeah see i don't know whether i i felt over the past couple of years no over the past year that i'd seen it mentioned more in the news and the media and certain media channels that got in touch with me, like through Joe's Trust with that article in the Huffington Post and things. So it makes me think, oh, they're, you know, people are actually trying to to raise awareness for it more. But then I think am I just more aware of anything that goes in the
0: media because I'm looking for it. I don't know if it still passes people by. I think both really, I think the NHS is now trying to put more funds and more efforts into it because it's realised that we're at a all time Mm. low in terms of the uptake but I also think the generation we're in at the moment everybody's looking for that excuse or Mm. the reason or thinking they're perfectly fit and healthy and obviously they're they're fine they don't have it not realizing the purpose of the smear Mm. yeah keep going and keep telling telling stories like yours and raising awareness as much as we can and making smears more accessible to people who are busy and and who are working to to try and make it easier for them to be able to have them done
1: yeah yeah I think just breaking down any of the taboos anyone that ev- even slightly mentions to me oh but it's gonna hurt won't it oh it's embarrassing I just shoot that idea straight down it's not embarrassing. <laughs> they <laughs> see all sorts of different things, you know, it doesn't hurt. They're lovely. I just don't even entertain ideas like that. But I know they are genuine fears of people. But I just, it's, if you think that it might be uncomfortable having a smear test or some people are even worried that it hurts, I just say to them, trust me, nothing hurts more than a cancer diagnosis and then treatment for cancer. So it's a minute, less than a minute of your life for a bit of slight embarrassment if you feel a bit that way, but rather that than have have
0: cancer. After speaking to Sophie, there are several key messages I really want to pick up on here. Irregular bleeding, unscheduled bleeding, abnormal bleeding. The term is pretty synonymous. It's a bleeding pattern, unusual for you. Unscheduled because it isn't your 28-day, 35-day regular cycle. It's bleeding which can occur mid-cycle, after intercourse, randomly. It's prolonged heavy periods when they were once light and short, and I know I come back to this time and time again during this podcast series, but it is a change from your normal. After giving birth, periods do change, at least for the first few cycles. They're often heavier and longer, and then a new rhythm is found, which may be different to what it was before, but continued bleeding, bleeding in between cycles and after intercourse isn't okay to leave. And I hope in listening to this and in understanding a little bit more about the process, it eliminates some degree of anxiety. I know that fear of the unknown can be crippling, but here's a sobering statistic. 8.8% of women invited to colposcopy don't go. They get a letter saying that they need further tests, their smear results have come back abnormal, and they don't go. And the final point I want to stress is the importance of going for your smear. And there's no one better than Dr. Alison Torrens to chat to us about this. I'm joined by Dr. Alison Torrens, a gynaecologist who is currently working in the south of England. Hi, Alison. Thank you for joining me.
2: Hi, Penny. Nice Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: So I wanted you really to try and demystify HPV for everyone who's listening because it's a relatively new change in terms of smear results but also in in terms of the vaccine so it'd just be nice to have a little chat about really what is human papillomavirus and why is it important in cervical cancer.
2: So HPV yeah as you said there has been a change to the cervical smear program recently which has brought HPV more to the forefront of people's minds but it's a really common virus there are loads of different, different types of HPV and only some of them are a problem. It's a virus, there are more than 100 types, probably way more than we have identified as yet, but it's a, a virus that affects the skin. So you can have lots of different types that affect the genital area um, in particular, and that's what we're thinking about when we, when we think about cervical cancer. But HPV is a, is a lot broader than that, so it includes things like warts and barukas and that kind of stuff. but we think specifically about HPV being the causative factor for cervical cancer. We think about particular high-risk strains of HPV. So there are about 30 to 40 types of HPV that will affect the genital area. And of those, there are only a very few, particularly two, like 16 and 18, which, affect, which are more at risk of, of developing cervical cancer. There are a couple of other ones as well, but they're much less likely to cause cervical cancer. So that's why we focus in on 16 and 18. The way that HPV is spread is by skin-to-skin contact. So when we think about types of strains that affect genital areas, obviously that's genital contact. So it doesn't have to be penetrative intercourse. It just has to be skin-to-skin contact. And most people will be affected by some form of HPV in their lifetime if they've been sexually active. Okay.
0: A lot of people ask me, "Is HPV an STD?" What what would be the best answer to say to people asking that question?
2: I think um, HPV is sexually transmitted in that it, but it doesn't have to be intercourse. So
0: it, it is just
2: skin to skin contact, and that can be oral sex, that can be digital. is most likely transmitted with with sexual activity. So if somebody has never been sexually active. And they're very unlikely to have an HPV infection.
0: Yeah. And that's presumably where it comes from in terms of the age of the HPV vaccine and trying to catch girls before they start having any sexual activity. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So we know that the vaccine works best in the first 10 years after it's given. And so what we want to do as a population is to try and vaccinate girls before they're sexually active. So that's why it's offered to girls who are in year eight, actually twelve to thirteen. Girls and boys, I should say now, to try and capture most children before they become sexually active. Obviously there will be people who are sexually active before that, but that's why it's done at that age. And it's not because we're expecting people to be we think it's normal for children to become sexually active at twelve to thirteen. It's just trying to get that window where you have most people covered by the vaccine in and around about the 10 years where they might first become sexually active. Sure.
0: And are you finding that the uptake of the vaccine is is quite high across the board or have you still got people who are anti-vaccine or different groups or demographics who aren't really taking it up?
2: I think that's that's part of an issue in that people think that if we're vaccinating the child against sexually transmitted infection that we're assuming that they're going to become sexually active and they don't want that, they don't want to encourage their child to become sexually active and there's a, a reluctance to have it happen but I think we need to increase understanding about about uh, protecting people for that 10 years probably more and that it will carry through to when they do become sexually active but it's about trying to capture most people before they become sexually active but yeah you're right there are yeah. there is a an element of reluctance about vaccinations in general but we are really keen for, for this to happen because it's such a preventable disease and we've got a really good screening program for it but it's it's a devastating thing to have happen for a young woman to develop cervical cancer and this is a way that we can try and reduce those numbers significantly. And that would be really, really beneficial.
0: And am I right in thinking it was about 2008, so 12 years ago since the vaccination programme started to be rolled out? I know, yeah. obviously, it's going to be several years before the full impact of that is is felt. But are you noticing changes in your practice from, from that starting?
2: I think at present, there isn't a massive shift within what we see in the gynaecology setting. Because we still have referrals for abnormal smears, because people still are getting HPV infections and have HPV change. I think as time goes on, once we get to to a bit a bit longer, then we will see numbers dropping off. Hopefully, especially with the the change in the screening program now that all the smear tests are now t- tested for HPV, rather than looking at each of the the cytology reports from the smear, looking at the cell cells themselves, they're tested for HPV first and only then are the the cells looked at so that will change the numbers of women that come to our screening colposcopy clinic where yeah. we actually look under a microscope at the at the cervix but i haven't i ha- can't say that we've seen a massive shift in numbers clinically
0: yet i've chatted a bit earlier in in this episode about smear tests and what people can expect when they get the results in terms of the cell changes but when somebody's told what about their HPV status, if it's positive or negative. What does that mean when they get that letter through the post when it might might mention that to them?
2: Yeah, so all that does is say that the smear test that has been done has been shown a positive result for some strain of HPV. And the strains that they look for are the high risk ones, so 16, 18 and other. So the result will come back with either one of those two high risk or another type of HPV. And then it means that that smear, the cells of that smear are then looked at under the microscope. So the cytology the is actually processed to look for changes within those cells that might be precancerous and need treating. So women can expect to find that either they've got they've got HPV infection, but no changes in the cells, which means nothing else needs to be done, or the changes in the cells have occurred and then they need to come up to the colposcopy clinic or have a repeat smear depending on the severity of the change. And the reason for that is because HPV takes a long time, very long time, to become cancerous change. We think about 10 years of, of persistent infection before you will get cancerous change within the cell. That's why we don't smear everybody every year. That's why we we wait the number of years in between times because the, ch- the changes take time to develop. And a lot of people will develop HPV and then clear it from their systems very quickly. So if we were doing smears, more frequently we would find that we had more people who would artificially need need to have colposcopy treatment and in actual fact they would have cleared the HPV infection themselves. So the screening program is designed to pick up the most number of women who've got high-risk HPV who then have changes to their cervix that actually need treatment and not just changes that would have gone away on their own.
0: That's really in- interesting to hear and I think a lot of people think we've got HPV that means that we're inevitably going to go on to develop cervical cancer why have we got this smear result saying we've Mm. got HPV but nothing is actually going to be done about it I I get quite a lot of phone calls as a GP about people Mm. panicking that that's not being looked at but actually knowing Mm. they will clear that themselves in all likelihood that's worth worth knowing and and finally about smear tests we're having a huge issue certainly where I am in terms of getting people to come for them and in the uptake I think it's pretty low compared to where the numbers have been. Any thoughts on why that might be or or what we can do to tackle that?
2: Yeah I think you're right I don't really know why women aren't coming for their smears. Awareness around tobacco cervical cancer kind of comes and fits and starts with things in the media and campaigns and various things like that and nobody can deny that it's not overly glamorous coming for your smear test people don't find it particularly you know you have to take some time out of your day and make an appointment and go to the doctor but push comes to shove it's not it's not really an uncomfortable thing to have to do that it doesn't take a long time Um, and I think we do need to remind women of the importance of going for their smears so I think it's more about educating women about the importance of coming for their smear and if they come early then things can be treated early and it's not cervical cancer that they then have to deal with. It's just a few abnormal cells that need treating. So I don't have all the answers as to why we how we get our, our smear numbers up. But I do think it's really important that we speak about cervical cancer often because it is something that we can do something about at early stages. And it takes a long time to become a developed cancer. So we have a window in which we can treat women and we need to try and improve our rates of of having smears done the important thing is this is a screening tool this is this is something that helps prevent them having more serious trouble in the future and i'm hopeful that if we can get that message out to women that they will they will continue to come for this
0: thank you it's such an important message and i think you're right we just need to keep talking about it don't we over and over again to increase awareness about why Mm -hmm. we're doing it
2: women don't need to be anxious about being HPV positive. They just need to keep coming for their smears and engage in the screening programme. And then hopefully we can reduce the numbers of women who sadly have to deal with, with cervical cancer.
0: Thank you so much, Alison, for chatting to us and sharing such an important message. To close, I want to leave you with one final thought. If there was a test, a free test, which you could detect signs you may develop cancer, or you had cancer in its early treatable stages, would you have it done? Currently, 40% of patients in my GP practice don't. I'll be right behind you, Josephine.